Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Denver, Colorado and the new Source Hotel. And especially great to welcome our first guest. He's the new governor of Colorado. Welcome Governor Jared Polis. Peter, you can you can stop traveling. You, you've made it to Colorado. <laughs> Well, I should tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, when I was a correspondent for Newsweek many, many years ago, I've been, I've been coming to, to Denver and to Colorado for almost 45 years. I take that back, 47 years. And I've always had a great time here. In fact, my very first cover story was on, uh, on Floyd Little, who played for the Denver Broncos from the old Mile High Stadium. And then, of course, came back and did so many other stories here. Uh, you are a, a trailblazer. Uh, you, you've set so many different records just because you are governor. Um, and and uh, you know we live in interesting times. I you know I talk about this all the time. That's the why we why we have this show. Travel is the largest industry in the world. Travel and tourism is such a big economic driver here in, in Colorado, as you already know. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about are all the different travel trends. You know who's not coming to the United States now? Uh, the the drop off in foreign visitors because uh, they feel that America is either unwelcoming, inhospitable, or closed. Some of that has to do, believe it or not, with the with Brexit. Some of that has to do with economic 
economic situations overseas and the power of the U.S. dollar overseas. And some of it even has to do with the perception of the wall. And I should say, in the interest of updating the news, Colorado is one of 16 states now suing the Trump administration over the legality of declaring an emergency over the wall. Well, I'm glad you you, you, you bring, you know, 47 years of historical context Colorado. So you yourself have seen some of the amazing transformations in our neighborhoods, uh, like Ryan Rhino, like Lodo before it, uh, where we've really had been kind of a, a great hub of this revitalization uh, that includes artistic elements and culinary elements and really helps make Denver special. Well, Governor, I have to tell you, when I came here 47 years ago, the definition of sautéed was deep fried. Things have changed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, mostly for the better. We have everything from, you know, you name it, vegan, gluten-free, raw, we got it all. Exactly. And where we're coming from now, the River North District is up and coming, just like Lodo was a couple of years ago. I mean, what this neighborhood was, what, five years ago, was industrial and depressed, and now it's galleries and, and, and retail, it's great stores, great hotels, this one being one of them. Um, and you guys keep on reinventing yourselves. Uh, it's really, Rhino's an, an amazing up-and-coming area, and yes, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of warehouses, failing infrastructure really started, you know, 2004. A lot of the local community uh, leaders came together, some local artists, uh, Tracy Weil and Joe Hadley Cooper, 2005, and formalized the name River North Art District Rhino. And even we use Rhinoceros as kind of the, the logo. Uh, the slogan is where art is made, and it really kind of combines the urban charm, the industrial revival, um, everything from street art to jazz bars to uh, people doing cutting-edge culinary and craft brewery work. It's really a great, amazing, authentic area uh, that is still uh, kind of a more on the affordable end than other areas of Denver. You're right. And, you know, when you think about it, people who were moving to Colorado maybe 10 or 15 years ago were, you know, not to stereotype it, but they were the ski bums. Today, you've had an explosion just here in Denver. Yeah, I mean, you know what? It's some of the same people. It's people who might happen to like to hike or bike or ski on weekends, too, right? And and, and want that urban cultural uh, lifestyle of Denver. Uh, but many of many of those same folks might might go to the mountains on weekends or, um, you know, or, or to some of our amazing uh, lakes or parks or wild areas, which are only, uh, you know, 15 minutes away to some great snowshoeing and hiking and biking, you know, two hours away to some of the greatest skiing in the world. And, of course, your predecessor, uh, Governor Hickenlooper, who's been on the show a number of times, he and I talked about the boom just in artisanal breweries. Yeah, you know, in addition to the uh, artisanal breweries, there's even an urban winery uh, in Rhino, the Infinite Monkey Theorem. So we really have a lot of uh, uh, farm-to-table uh, work. Uh, it's really really a, a culinary renaissance in, in, in Colorado is, is really participating in that, including the Denver area, uh, but also other areas of our great state, from, you know, Alamosa, Trinidad, to Pueblo, out of Fort Collins. Exactly. Now, now I'm going to date myself here because somebody gave me this, this, this statistic the other day, and it was a little shocking to me. The last major new airport in the United States was Denver, and that was 25 years ago. <laughs> well, we and we do have uh, direct flights from uh, almost every you know major city with our uh, uh, airport. We have a new airport hotel, light rail transit right into Denver from the airport, makes it quick. Uh, we're actually doing some work there now over the next year or so and, and redoing uh, the terminal. It's going to be even better uh, expanded flights, including international flights. So it's easy to get to Denver. Great place to spend some time. Uh, you can hit the mountain, too, if, if that's what you're into, or you can enjoy the urban cultural theme. Exactly. And when I first came here to 
cover that story. Of course, DIA stood for de- doesn't include airplanes. The de- you know the airport was delayed. The the runways were con- you know considered sinking. The baggage conveyors were eating the bags. Uh, everything's been turned around. It's it's an airport that absolutely works, especially in bad weather. I mean, you've you've ma- if you can't master the art of how, how to keep the airport open in bad weather, nobody can. Yeah, yeah, far far better on time ratios in other hubs like Chicago, San Francisco. Uh, we we you know keep people moving in and out. We even have great culinary experiences at the airport. Uh, it's rated the best airport in the United States. It's uh, it's a quick, easy airport, and again, we've made great strides in improving access. You remember when it was built? It was a bit of a distance from downtown. Obviously, it hasn't moved, although the downtown's moved towards it. But we now have light rail transit right into the airport. And believe it or not, they're putting in some solar power out there. Oh yeah, we have we have uh, exactly we have a lot of uh, solar panels out there, and and um, we're focused statewide on renewable energy. We're focused on the benefits to clean air and doing our part on climate. Our, our statewide goal is 100% renewable energy by 2040. You know, for years there was there was a, a hotel, the Ritz Carlton, in, in Bachelor Gulch in Colorado. They had they had their own dog at the hotel, and you could adopt the dog for the evening. And it got out of control because they were running out of, of golden retrievers <laughs> because everybody wanted it. And in Aspen, the uh, the the uh, the uh, animal rescue police there, uh, they have an a, a, adopt a dog for a day. Well, you just they give you the dog for the day, and then of course you absolutely know what's going to happen. You're taking it home. And I should also point out, as you're probably noticing, Colorado is a very dog friendly state. Denver's a dog friendly city. We have lots of great parks. Uh, very dog-friendly policies, and uh, you know, again, just a if you got to have a larger dog, just a quick, quick jaunt up to the the mountains or one of our beautiful, beautiful wild areas, and uh, let them play and frolic. Let's talk about travel and tourism in general, and then get specifically in, in terms of Colorado. As I said earlier, it is the largest industry in the world. It's one out of every eleven jobs, and perhaps even more importantly, it's one out of every five new jobs. Something that, of course, is near and dear to you in terms of generating an economic driver and sustaining that. What's your biggest challenge in the tourism industry here in Colorado? Well, you know, uh, we, we have, as you mentioned, it's one of our leading, leading sources of jobs. We're highlighting, of course, some of our amazing wild areas, our outdoor tourism and recreation industry. We, uh, in, in Denver, are now the host of the Outdoor Industry Association Trade Show. We just had their snow show a couple of weeks ago. I got to walk the floor, but everybody who works as backcountry guides, um, takes people on, people on fishing expeditions, retail, hospitality, uh, many of our mountain communities. Uh, what we need to do a better job at is, is making sure we can open up access to even more of our wild areas. It leads to a better experience for our visitors. And by the way, it's not just our visitors and tourists. Our amazing wild areas are an important part of quality of life for people who live in Colorado, right? I mean, that's an important reason why we live here is enjoying our great outdoors. And we need to do a better job opening up uh, new amazing areas for those kinds of experiences. Including putting out the welcome mat for foreigners. Well, well, absolutely. Uh, we've, as like a lot of states, uh, we've always had a healthy contingent of, uh, of, of foreign tourists visiting our mountain areas, and, and we've seen that decline. And, uh, of course, we hope to increase domestic and international tourism because Colorado has some of the best, you know, skiing, boarding, um, snowshoeing, hiking uh, in, in the world. And, of course, uh, world-class cultural culinary opportunities in, in, in Denver, our cultural, cultural hub. Governor, are you a skier or a boarder? I'm a skier myself. I, I, I ride a mean lift, and I, I do great apres ski. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's fun. You know, we're, uh, our kids are seven and four, and uh, we're going to be taking them skiing for the, for the first time this year. We haven't had the chance yet. I've been a little busy doing things like running for governor the last couple of years. Yeah, and you won. Congratulations. Hey, 
the bottom line is, though, when you take a look at the real numbers that we're seeing, there's been a, a substantial drop in the number of foreign visitors to the United States over the last two and a half years. Uh, and depending on the figures you believe, it's anywhere from 7 to 9 percent. Um, and, the, and, of course, some of that is due to the power of the U.S. dollar overseas. Some of that is due to uncertainty surrounding still the situation in the U.K. and Europe over Brexit. People just tend to travel less when they're not certain about things. And then, of course, there's the perception of our own government as being, you know, basically uh, posturing or, po or positioning a, a country that is perceived to be unwelcoming, inhospitable, or closed – um, I've, I've talked to so many people overseas who say, I'm not going to go to the United States this year because I either don't support those policies or I think I'll be discriminated against. How do you get around that? Well, you know, we, we, uh, uh, the, the focus of our, my inauguration was Colorado for all, and, and we want a state where everybody uh, can thrive and, and, and do great, and that means people uh, who, whose families have been here for thousands of years as members of our Native American tribe, the descendants of the Spanish settlers who came to the valley in southern Colorado 500 years ago, to somebody who arrived last week uh, as, as an immigrant or as a tourist. And uh, again, you know, some of the countries that have sent us tourists, obviously uh, many are concerned with the president's uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. We've had many tourists over the years from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and, and certainly we're seeing a decline in that, as well as uh, international students at our universities. And then, of course, the other uh, country, which we've had many, many tourists from that he's targeted for a particular ire, and in fact, literally a wall, is Mexico. Um, our ski resort communities, Vail, Aspen, not only of many uh, members of their community who are immigrants, who uh, are an important part of being able to provide the uh, travel experience to our guests, but we have many uh, tourists in our own right from uh, from Mexico and from other Latin American countries. And uh, it's one of the reasons that's so important that we show that we support a Colorado for all. You know, Governor, you mentioned Mexico. A little-known story for a lot of people is that while everybody's hung up over the issue of the wall, down in San Diego and Tijuana, they built a bridge. And and well, it's, one of the it's one of the most successful bridges you'll ever see. It's called the Cross-Border Express and over 2 million Americans, mostly Californians, literally physically walk across that bridge, and that bridge takes them into the central terminal of the Tijuana airport, and they're flying out of there at discount rates all over the world, and it works. Well, you know, and, and, and since we don't uh, border uh, Mexico, it has to be a metaphorical bridge, in, in our case, from Colorado, but it's certainly a cultural bridge. Uh, it's a bridge of, of, of uh, tourism. It's a bridge of heritage. And uh, we also, of course, highlight that we have many direct nonstop international flights from Denver International Airport, including London Heathrow and Munich and Tokyo Narita, as well as several destinations in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, and, and more airlines coming. You're one of 16 states right now, and that number may grow, uh, where the attorneys general of those states have, have basically joined to sue the Trump administration over the legality of the state of emergency for the wall. Uh, yeah, and and uh, in fact, uh, those emergency comes funds would come from our military preparedness. So, upwards of a hundred million dollars would be taken out of our base construction in Colorado. Uh, we have a strong military heritage in our state: uh, uh, Fort Carson, uh, Buckley, uh, um, the Air Force Academy, uh, uh, the North American uh, Air Command. So, we have a, a strong military presence, and uh, you know, in this sort of false emergency declaration that even even the president acknowledges not an emergency uh those funds come from somewhere and because 
Uh, he lost the battle with Congress to, <clears throat> given those funds, he's proposing reducing our military preparedness in places like Colorado. You know, when we talk about the economic reactivity in terms of travel and tourism, we've had, you know, 35 days of the government shut down. It's one thing to say that, you know, federal workers weren't working, but the impact on the travel industry alone was significant because we're dealing with restaurants, we're dealing with airlines, we're dealing with hotels, we're dealing with all that infrastructure that is supported uh, when the government is working, which that income they can't get back, that's revenue they can't recoup. You know, one of the things that, that we highlighted during the, the shutdown is no uh, craft brewery was able to introduce any type of new label of beer because all beer labeling uh, needs to be approved as a controlled substance by um, by the folks in, in Washington at the at the at the agency, you know, to make sure it's labeled correctly and not marketed to kids and all that stuff. And it's usually pretty cursory, and they just get their approval. But when the federal government was shut down, literally no microbrewery, craft brewery could introduce any new labels of beer, and we visited a few with a few that were directly affected. So there's so many things that impacts above and yeah. beyond just, oh, federal workers. There's important work that they do. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. My next guest has been on the show before, and every time he comes on, he wows me with new information because the numbers keep changing, the, the, the sources keep changing, and the experiences keep changing and getting better all the time. He's the reporter for the Denver Business Journal, Ed Sealover. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks for having me on, Peter. And of course, what we're talking about is food, and we're talking about restaurants, and we're talking about beer. The good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. I mean, the source where we're staying, they have their own brewery. Yes, I yes. Mean, I mean, you walk, the, the wildest thing about this hotel is when you check in, there's, you're checking in. It's not just the front desk. It's a front desk with a tap. It's like bizarre. And they go, what would you like? I'd like, I'd like a room. <laughs> but you can have a beer. I, I tend to think that the, the wildest thing is that this is the only hotel that does that. I, yeah. I would figure that would become standard fare for Denver the way that it's imbued but, our culture. Well, it would give somebody a pretty good idea. I, I'm amazed they didn't think about it before. I, I am too. Talk about a uh, long line for check-in. Come on. <laughs> people would be faking check-in just to have a beer. Right. I, you know, I now you started it, you see. So since the last time we saw each other, we're about a year ago here, what's changing in the restaurant scene here? Uh, you know, it, what's changing is we just see more and more restaurants coming, uh, which is leading to more and more turnover as well. Which means um, more and more going, too. Right, right. You know, there's about 250 uh, that opened last year after 240 in 2017. Uh, we are starting to see more closings. Uh, and, and when I say closings, I mean the restaurants that people used to come in town and go to, uh, just because we're starting to see uh, so much competition in the scene. But we're, we're it's interesting. I mean, what, what's coming is, in some ways, more specific. We're seeing more ethnic fare here. Uh, Israeli fare, really big in the last year. I had dinner here last night. At uh, Softa? Yes. At Softa. You yeah. know what? A, a really nice surprise. Yeah. I wasn't expecting, because, you know, there's hummus and there's hummus. Then they've got hummus. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, and and it's not just, you know, Alan, who owns Softa, is, is kind of an expert at Israeli fare, but you're seeing... Uh, way beyond falafel and hummus. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing some of the local uh, restaurateurs who are known for a wide range of food. Daniel Asher is one who comes to mind. Open up Israeli-specific restaurants. That's how uh, interested people are at, at finding that niche to get into that's unique in Denver, because right now it's hard to be unique in Denver's food scene. I know, because... but. You know, there is that sort of fine line between being innovative and, and a stunt. 
<laughs> there is, and I don't think stunts last very long here, but I, I don't think we, we see too many of the weird stunt restaurants either. I mean, you, you just see people who have twists on things. Hey, we have twists on Southern food where, you know, we're not deep frying everything, or we have twists on Italian where it's more meat-based instead of pasta-based, but but nothing that's, you know, uh, too weird. Okay, I'll give you my, my two most recently uttered words, not by me, bison burger. <laughs> that's not a stunt around here. That's classic. I mean, bison burgers have been uh, been around for for twenty plus years here. This is a this is a state where bison and elk are both considered non weird food groups. I mean, we sure we we've got <laughs> restaurants that serve snake and and that serve gator and things like that. Oh, but, but, but let me tastes just like chicken. <laughs> it, it, it does. If, if made correctly, yes, gator <laughs> tastes just like chicken. But bison is actually fairly common. I'd say probably twenty five percent of the burger places at least have bison burgers as an option. So what's the biggest trend that you're seeing? The biggest trend that we're seeing is is kind of less upscale, more chef-driven, smaller locations. More open kitchens. More open Everybody's kitchens. Everybody's got an open kitchen now. Yeah, more open kitchens, more dinners, uh, more specific reasons to come into a restaurant. It, it's no longer throw up in your doors and people will come. That might happen for a weekend or two, uh, but you've really got really to stand out and, and hit something different there. Um, more vegetarian options on restaurants. Um, that's a, a big trend around here. I mean, and, and everything that uh, that you wouldn't have expected five years ago that uh, that might just be attracting people. I, I think of, for example, a, a restaurant here in town, Good Zur, uh, that has uh, butterflies um, because you need to stand out and and uh, what, draw you, people. You got, a, you got a sampling of different butters. Yes, yeah, absolutely, you do. While you're drinking, usually do they then bring the stretcher to the table? After, <laughs> I just want to know how they work. It, it, it comes along with a defibrillator, actually. <laughs> you know what? You could actually market a restaurant with a defibrillator at every table. And let's and let people just challenge their 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 threshold. I believe there's a burger place in Vegas that does that. No, no, and, and that's no, the no, kind no. of stunts we don't get here. I know there yeah. was there was a burger place once that offered a burger that was so big that if you could eat it, it was free. It, but you had to eat it at one sitting. And did you have to sign up for life insurance before you did that? Yeah. No, <laughs> other people were betting on you because it was Vegas. <laughs> it was an over and under on whether you were going to go under. You know. <laughs> What about the food truck scene? I mean, last time we talked, it was it was starting to explode. Is it still exploding? It is exploding. But one of the things I think that is interesting now, and, and we're still seeing it because every brewery that opens up, or you know, at least three out of four breweries, do not have a kitchen these days. They want the food truck scene to come along. And, and you see more distilleries and more wineries coming along. And frankly, those are also taking advantage of food trucks. Um, but the interesting trend we've seen lately, there are a number of food trucks that are starting to settle down, if you will, hitting their middle age, buying a house, or in this case, a brick-and-mortar restaurant restaurant and moving into there I think uh, so when, they branded as a food truck and then they just moved the brand yeah exactly when, you know once you get that loyal customer base where you think you can drag them to you instead of going to them uh, we've seen a number of restaurants opening that have been fairly successful as well all right now not counting the brewery that's in this hotel which mm -hmm. is what New Belgium I believe New Belgium and yeah. it's a very specific brewery that makes only experimental and sour beers here oh yeah that okay I checked into the hotel right and there was the tap I couldn't avoid it, so they said, would you like a beer, right? So, okay, fine. It was a sour beer. Mm -hmm. That's an acquired taste. It is definitely an acquired taste, but it is also a burgeoning taste around here. You see a lot of breweries that uh, that used to be only a few breweries in the state were really making sour beers. Now it's almost mandatory. If you've got 12 taps, one of them is going to be sour, or one of them is going to be something you've aged in a barrel that's got bugs going into it, not literal bugs, but uh, uh, but uh, pediococcus or, or lactobacillus or something like that that's going to give a funky taste. 
people just want that now. It's 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 that big uh, an idea for for how to expand beer to a new frontier. And you know, we were talking to the governor earlier, and he was talking about the crisis that was happening during the government shutdown because all the artisanal breweries couldn't get their new their new brand certified because no, there's nobody in the government to say, okay, it's beer, right? Yeah, or that, that, that this label is okay. You know, brings up the question: Why is the government still approving labels for beers? But uh, but yeah, absolutely, that was a problem. Uh, although you see a number of breweries that have pulled out of this is one of the trends you see pulled out of distributing their beers and are just selling across the bar room and tap areas now because that's a much higher uh, percentage of profit they're going to get off of that. One of the things about Denver that most people don't realize is it's growing in population. It's the 19th most populous U.S. city, and yet the population is still under 700,000. It's, it's, uh, it, but that's about to change. It, it's because so many more people are coming in at all the times, and it is still the highest major city in the United States. There's a reason why it's called the Mile High City. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It, we're talking with Ed Sealover from the Denver Business Journal, if you're just joining us. You know, one of the things that uh, always interests me is that you guys are trailblazing now in terms of, I mean, you have more microbreweries than anybody, right? In terms of artisanal breweries of, 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 a, of a U.S. city. Uh, I, I think actually San Diego can bear uh, brag about having a few more and, really? and maybe even Portland as well. But uh, but we're right up there. Yeah, and- but the difference is Portland doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> but bottom line, you've got that. You've got an exploding restaurant scene. Absolutely. And then you've got legalized marijuana. Absolutely. And we've got a ballot initiative coming up in May to legalize uh, magic mushrooms. You're kidding. I'm not joking. No, that is literally <laughs> going to be on the, the Denver City ballot. Which uh-huh. is going to be followed in short order by a magic magic mushroom restaurant. <laughs> you know it. I was going to say the Mellow Mushroom Pizza Joint is going to have a hard time competing or people are going to be really disappointed when they walk in there or and just find this? pizza. How would you like your mushrooms? That's going to be from now on. <laughs> That's right. Sauteed deep fried or would you like to be deep fried I mean, <laughs> that's it yes yeah has that attracted a different scene the fact that marijuana is legal uh, I think originally it may have and, and we might have gotten a, a lot more uh, looky loop tourism people coming out for that but especially now that we're seeing state after state legalizing marijuana what is it more than half the states are legalized medicinal and we're eight or ten that have legalized recreational I don't think it's as big a part of the culture anymore I, th- I think people will still come here but it's it's not it's not rampant are there any restaurants cooking with it there are a few that try cooking with it and you're seeing more and more CBD Bakeries, bakeries. (laughs) It's there are a couple that offer marijuana cooking classes. You see more places doing CBD-based drinks. Uh, That seems to be more popular than mixing it into the food in a lot of ways. Yeah, marijuana cooking class. School starts at seven. Whatever. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but they're doing it. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, and, and it's it's a little bit, uh, you know, th- that gives an example of how it's kind of mainstreaming in the culture right now. People don't blanch at that anymore. They think, oh yeah, maybe I will go. Although for my listeners, I have to give you an important caution, and it's a it's a real one, and that is if you want to smoke it here or eat it here, that's only here, because if you go to the airport and you're carrying, and you're flying to another state, you're going to get yourself arrested, uh, especially if you're driving. I mean, for so many years that we had, you know, the Arizona Highway Patrol guys and sheriffs were on the border uh, with Colorado just waiting for you guys. Yeah, and I think that's still true in in Kansas and Oklahoma as well in our southeast areas. Um, And the other thing for people should know is if you want to smoke it here, I hope you have a friend who has a house here because you can't smoke outside. You can't smoke in bars. You can't smoke in almost any hotel in this state. So good luck with uh, finding a place to smoke if you want to come here to smoke marijuana. And all the times I've been here, people are not exactly honoring the don't smoke in a hotel rule. They're also not exactly honoring the don't smoke outside. But if you are caught, it is a crime. It's a misdemeanor. It is a misdemeanor, yes. What's the biggest challenge now, other than the fact there's so many new restaurants opening? 
I think that's uh, and that's true in the brewing scene too. I think the biggest challenge is uh, is longevity at this point. Well, you know, um, it's, it's one thing. I'll, I'll just be devil's advocate. Let's say I want to open a brewery. Mm-hmm. It's one thing for me to say we're limited production. Well, no kidding. I mean, that's how you start, right? But if you can't get anybody to buy it or you can't get shelf space at the store. You're gonna be really limited production. Yeah, and 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 shelf space at the store is is not as big a an attraction as it used to be. There's so little shelf space at the store. There's almost 400 breweries in the state of Colorado right now. Um, that uh, that that a lot of folks, as we were talking about earlier, just say, forget it. Come into my tap room. There you see more places doing comedy shows, more places doing concerts, more places doing things to get people into the tap room. We even have two well-known breweries who combine their tap room in order to get a bigger crowd, um, because that's where the money is, and that's how they want to expand themselves are they um, shipping the beer uh, they are shipping um probably about uh one quarter of our breweries even ship to local uh stores and if you want to go out of state that's probably maybe only 40 to 50 colorado breweries that do that at this point you know i remember a story which was still vivid in my mind because i saw it happen when i was a correspondent for newsweek air force one was flying from the west coast nixon was president right was flying from from uh, el toro marine base back to washington and amazing thing happened every time it would fly back to washington there was some presidential reason why they had to make a stop in denver for coors for coors beer yes because coors wasn't shipped out of the state it was pasteurized there were all these rules against it air force one was making a stop and you'd see crates loading onto the air force one it was like the unofficial beer of the white house it's like the presidential version of Smokey and the bandit yes yeah. and now of course you can get course all over the world uh, but there is actually there's a, there's a brand ac golden that's their incubator brand that you can only get here in colorado that is made 99.9 percent with colorado ingredients so if you love your cores and you still like that 70s vibe come here for ac <laughs> golden beer instead yeah but don't take it out because you can't <laughs> <laughs> you you can actually put that on a plane that's not illegal so, yeah. yeah but by the way there's a difference between a bottle on a plane and a can on a plane you don't ever check the can on the plane. It will explode. <laughs> yes, yeah. The bottle, you might be able to get it so it doesn't explode in the, in the cargo hold. Yeah, your neighbor's not going to be happy with you at that point. Well, not okay. the neighbor. You can't, you can't bring it on the plane. You've got to check it. Either yes, way. yeah. Okay, we've done, with the food, we've done the food trucks. Mm-hmm. What's the most crazy, interesting restaurant that's open in Denver now? I think the one that people are talking about the most is one that opened last year. It's called Denver Milk Market. Uh, and, and every city has its food halls, and most food halls combine a lot of talents. Denver Mar- Milk Market is the 15-restaurant um, pay-on of Frank Banana, one of our local chefs. They are all his ideas, everything from Nashville chicken to sushi to pasta uh, to gelato that he literally learned to make in the week before he opened this so that it could be his own uh, the gelato. Learn while you learn program. Yeah. yeah. And it's fascinating going there and just bopping from place to place. It is constantly packed when I go in there. We are a food hall scene, but that is the one that seems to stand out as the most unique food hall to Denver right now. I will tell you, in some of my travels recently uh, in places like Lisbon and Warsaw, the, the new food halls that are opening there, some of them actually being sponsored by magazines like Time Out. Um, Amazing opportunities. Just, you just, you can't get enough. It's, it's, it's great. And every food hall in Denver seems to have a different uh, focus now. We've got an incubator food hall. We've got one where you can buy. What's an incubator food hall? It's places that chefs can go either to try out a concept that they've never tried out, or people who have never operated a restaurant can go in, stay there. This is Avanti F. <laughs> There's hope is, for me. <laughs> yeah, the name of it. Uh, usually on two-year contracts, try it out. If it works, move into a brick-and-mortar place. And we've seen a number, about a half dozen, I, that have gone brick-and-mortar you know from what? there. I love the idea. 
of incubator food halls. It really is. I mean, and people come there because there's a constantly changing group of restaurants, so you never know what's going to be there when you show up, and that's a that's part of the attraction. All right, so let's continue that line of thought. What happened in an incubator food hall that surprised you that actually caught on? Um, I think that uh, what you see is the chefs who bring, you know, we, we have a chef, uh, Lon Simmonsma, who is known as kind of the, the Asian chef here in, in Colorado, who decided to open up a taco place in the incubator food hall. And suddenly, boom, he is now the taco and Asian guy. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen some some great stuff uh, go in and out of there. I mean, there's like pizza and arapas places that are always there. Um, but but you see just some more experimental things going on. And that's what's fun about it. Okay. Give me, give me one idea of an experimental place. There was a, um, uh, a place that served um, ramen bowls doesn't describe them well. They were, they were noodle bowls. They were hot as heck, though. I mean, this was like as spicy a, a Southeast Asian concept as you could get. And a lot of people went there just clamoring for that. I was one of those. And, so, and you survived. I survived, yes. But they did not end up going brick and mortar. The chef decided he wanted to go in a different direction with his food. But, uh, but people would go back there and talk about that over and over again. But it didn't catch on? No, it caught on. He just decided that wasn't what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, sriracha sauce. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know the story about the sriracha factory in California? Oh, they, yes. They yeah. try to close it all the time because people are just choking just going by there. Right, right. Yes, you know, we, we have a chicken rendering plant uh, up the road from here that, that people can smell, but I don't think that's anything compared to sriracha fumes going into your nose all the time. A chicken rendering plant. That We'll, we'll put that on the tour. <laughs> Not. It's a little outside of Denver. Yes. We're talking right. to Ed Sealover from the Denver, Denver Business Journal. What about garbanzo beans? Uh, garbanzo beans are, uh, I think when you talk garbanzo in Denver, people know the garbanzo chain a little bit more, yeah. but garbanzo beans are, are one of those, uh, I think it goes right along with the, the Mediterranean feel that you see in more restaurants. Uh, we're, we're getting more people and, and Denver is a heavily vegetarian city. Denver is a healthier city than most, uh, when it comes to its eating. And, and so, yeah, that, uh, that may not be what you're thinking of with our food, but a lot of people are thinking that way. Exactly. I just want to, I'm just learned a new word today from now on when people ask me where I want to go to dinner I'm just going to say I'd like to go to an incubator should <laughs> there be a rapid change in cabin pressure oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge and to start the flow of oxygen pay your flight attendant $75.63 here in Denver otherwise known as River North otherwise known as the Rhino District uh, up-and-coming location here in Denver, just the way Lodo was a couple of years ago, just booming now. And uh, a person who knows more about that than anybody is my next guest. He's the president and co-founder of the Rhino Art District. Tracy Weil, how are you, sir? I'm good. Good morning. How are you? Former radio host at Durango. <laughs> right. KDUR. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Your college days. Yeah, right. I read those police reports. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Is there an art district? I mean, I mean, it's happening so fast. Yeah, I mean, we formed our district in uh, 2005, and it's about a mile radius, and it makes up both sides of the tracks of, uh, you know, East and West Rhino. So it's it's here. We have, let's see, we have over 475 artists in the district, 22 galleries, uh, and when about, you say there are 475 artists that are not just living here, that while they're living, working, or exhibiting here, or they have work here. And how many different galleries? Uh, 22. Wow. Yeah, it's great. It's amazing. Um, and a lot of small businesses, a lot of entrepreneurs, breweries, restaurants, you know, they're all creative locations. So it's amazing. And you've got one of your own galleries. I do. I do. Yeah. Wild Wild Works. works. Yep. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> is there a distinctive nature to the galleries? I mean, is there one particular 
mode of, of, of art? Well, you know, it's it's all it's mostly Colorado, right? Um, and it's very interesting to me. I always think that. But when when people you let's put this in perspective. Okay. When people talk about Colorado art, they're thinking like Remington and horseback stuff. Yeah. No, we're a little bit more progressive. So we have a lot of murals, a lot of street art, a lot of more contemporary work. But we also have you know we have some old school people that do more traditional work. Um, it's it's a great co- sort of contrast because we're right next to the National Western Stock Show um, complex, and they have actually the the really Colorado traditional art. So it's a nice contrast. What's the most surprising gallery? Most surprising? Um, I love Helicon Gallery. I think it's amazing. It's a, a couple of young people that have put it together. Their family has actually been in the neighborhoods for probably about 35 years. And what's in this gallery that makes it so surprising? It's uh, it's more digital. It's a digital work um, you know, created on a computer and then printed out and then you can purchase it from there. Wow. Yeah, it's good. Now, when I look, for example, if I was going to do a walk down the, the district, mm-hmm. different, all those galleries, the one that will always get my attention is the one that has a sense of humor. Yeah, oh yeah, it's fun. Well, there is a show currently uh, at the Pattern Shop, and it's a show about Trump, so it's quite interesting. You'll, you would love it. How orange is it? It's very orange, and it's very progressive, and it's a little bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> is it mean? Uh, it's more sat- sat- satire, I would okay. say. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's... Um, and is this a rotating exhibit? Or is that... <laughs> uh, well, Sharon, Sharon Bond Brown has been an artist in uh, the district for 25 years, for a very long time, her and her husband Rex. And um, they've got a great space, and she does regular shows. So th- this is one of her series that she's working on. And, okay, now, what different, I mean, forms does it take? Is it clay? Is it sculpture? Is it, is it what... <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I mean it's it's all of the above. We have uh, several different medias um, or mediums, and uh, from clay, from metal, sculpture, uh, photography. We have a lot of photographers here. Are some of the other players represented, like Muller, and uh, you know the the, the, the inspector, you know, the, you know, the the special prosecutor? Oh, 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 sorry, I was digressing. You're there with the artist. You thought I was talking about an artist. I was digressing about all the work that's actually in Rhino. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's got all the cabinet, all the well, the camp. The former cabinet and the current cabinet. Well, right now in the Trump stuff. administration, there's no such thing as the current cabinet. It's the acting cabinet. I mean, <laughs> right. Everybody's like in and out so fast. I purchased Sean Spicy just because I thought it was so funny. Um, the whole Melissa McCarthy thing was just amazing. Oh, that <laughs> I, I I actually fell over when I watched that first time. I know. When the hilarious. podium started to move. Yeah. When, when she. <laughs> un- Believable, mm. but I'm right. sure you know if people come to. to Can the, I get a Rex district, Tillerson? The, uh, there's a Rex, yeah. Oh, there yeah. is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh really? Definitely. Yeah, you would love it. There's actually. Uh, she just made a book that's actually sold at the Rhino Maid store. Now you know they've gone off the deep end. If I can get a Wilbur Ross, <laughs> I don't know if there's a Wilbur. No, I bet there's a Wilbur. I mean, they're pretty pretty thorough. Wow. Okay, I got to go check that out. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's a sense of humor. Right. What would you say is the most cutting edge of Cut, all the galleries? Cutting edge. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, I'm off the top of my head. It's hard to think. Well, you know, our street art is pretty cutting edge, you know, and those can be seen, you know, throughout all the alleyways in, in the district that can be seen, you know, on local businesses, walls. And you can interiors. take a walking tour. And yeah, there are yeah, tours. yeah, it's quite amazing. And, you know, it's, it's, there's some progressive work that's really, um, I, call, I call it street smart mostly. Website, Tracy? Uh, my website uh, or the Rhino website? The Rhino website. Uh, rhinoartdistrict.org. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When I mention the source and you look at the neighborhood here, it begs for someone to explain the history. And we just happen to have that person with me right now. He's the, uh, he's basically run Zeppelin Development. What, a, what, a, what an amazing coincidence. His name is Kyle Zeppelin. And this is your neighborhood, man. This is what you developed. So if you can, Kyle, start me off by telling me the history of this building and the building next to it. Absolutely. So uh, we got started in the neighborhood about 20 years ago, really kind of like wrong side of the tracks, forgotten neighborhood, very central. Yeah, but you got in early. We did, yep. Um, so bigger scale sites, um, second generation developer. So my dad started in, in Lodo in the mid-70s, which is another urban neighborhood. So that, wait, a minute, you're taking credit for Lodo too? I'm, I'm not. Personally. That, was, <laughs> that predated me. Uh, yeah, but you guys are obviously ahead of your time because that would look at Lodo today. Yeah, so just kind of seeing potential where other people don't is really our niche. And in this case, it's just uh, underused former industrial neighborhood that had some upside, but um, I don't know that most people saw it. Exactly. Now, this used to be the building next to this was what? So next to this is an 1880s former iron foundry. So they basically made parts for the railroad. Um, it had gone into disuse for 50 plus years um, and kind of marginal uses like the rest of the neighborhood. And we did the first urban market hall in Denver um, that was very well received. Um, that created the momentum of eventually to build out within a couple of years to build out this hotel complex, which includes another 15 retailers, all um, interesting kind of design forward retail combined with um, some very signature restaurants. And away you go. And it's and just, then the housing followed. There's housing. There's, um, you know, it's just a new neighborhood in a city that's getting a lot of growth and um, it seems to be getting a lot of attention and really filling a niche for um, what Denver can become, setting, setting the bar. You know, sort of look, using this as a model, when you were doing this, what were the, what the biggest surprises you encountered in trying to make this happen? So, you know, anytime... Other than the you know, zoning and fire right. codes and, you know. Yeah, I think just building a new place. So we had this kind of amazing canvas to work with um, as far as this used up neighborhood, but... You really need overlapping activities of your restaurant flow. You want, you know, retail stores. You need people to live there. Um, so to have a place that people actually want to come takes a lot of different layers, and it doesn't just happen in one generation. And the other question is, it's not just you want people to live there. You want people to be able to afford to live there. Absolutely. That is that is the most unexplored niche um, for this neighborhood, and really the next chapter is, Work, more working class housing so regular people can afford to live urban, um, that it's not just an enclave for, for uh, affluent people that can afford it. Now, in any development, you have a short-term and a long-term view. Obviously, you had your, your targets to start with. What's the long-term view for Rhino? Long-term is a mixed-use community that includes working class housing. It includes a lot of these amenity features that basically everybody wants of like bars, restaurants. No, they want roof. Um, they want. They want. Stores, they want rooftop bars. Um, some rooftop rooftop bars, a mix of. Uh, There's one here. Old and new. There is. Yeah, we have the eighth floor is a tasting room for New Belgium Brewery, 
Um, so it's the biggest brewer, biggest craft brewer in the state. Was it always the plan to have a brewery in the hotel? No, it was pretty improvised. So it's it's the only <laughs> one of its kind that I know of or we've heard about that has a production scale brewery built into the lobby. And, uh, you know, that's become a really signature feature. So we basically fought every battle with this project, everything from a very demanding hotel operator um, with the St. Julian Group out of Boulder. Um, so very high standards for hospitality all the way through to production scale brewery and 15 retail and restaurant outlets. All right. I have to ask the question. Whose idea was it to put a tap behind the front desk? I think that anytime you have a brewery off the lobby that's really featured, <laughs> you, people want to taste what's being produced. And um, that was a pretty big no-brainer. Yeah, there's the frequent stay club, but there's also the frequent drinking club at the front desk now. Right, so you get a beer on arrival. Those those over BOA, if they're as opposed fine. to DOA. That's right. I got it. What's the next big project in this district? So we're we're working on a variety of things. We have housing for um, employees for a lot of these companies, a lot of the bars and restaurants. But you uh, all, but you employers. also but you also lucked out because you're on the commuter rail line. That's right. Well, that was always part of the plan so it's the first line that really goes somewhere that most people in the metro area want to get which is dia and downtown and we're the last stop uh, before downtown so you can actually walk out of the hotel here and not far away get on the train and go to the airport that's right it's to totally transformative as far as uh being able to to grab a train from dia uh, grab a scoot one of these uh, dockless scooters or bikes um, or take Uber or Lyft and not have to depend on a car at all. And that's what we're seeing a lot of people are doing. Not a bad idea. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Artwork is differently defined by different people. What was once considered criminal is now considered the hottest thing going. Uh, I recently, I mean, I've been running around the world, so I've seen it everywhere. And, of course, we're talking about graffiti. But in particular, two things always amaze me. One is where it's done. For example, when I come back to New York and I'm coming over the Triborough Bridge and I look across and I see a, a huge railroad bridge that's as high as the Triborough Bridge and I see graffiti on the, on, the, on, the, on the rails where you couldn't possibly physically get there, of course, my question is, I don't even care if it's ugly. I just don't know how they did it. I mean, the acrobatics involved, the engineering involved, and of course, that's very much a part of, of, of what my next guests talk about. I was in Medellin uh, not too long ago, and they have an amazing tour of graffiti there. Uh, they also do it in Bogota as well, but um, it's, it's turned things around, and it's actually helped now to define neighborhoods and define cities and define culture. And joining me now, people who know that better than anybody, because they're the, they're the owners of Denver Graffiti Tours. Yes, there's a tour here in Denver. Uh, Aaron Spradlin and James Carlson, how are you guys? Good. Hi, Peter. Yeah. Now, you, when I was mentioning Medellin, you were shaking your head, too, because you've been there, right? We've been to Bogota. Yeah. So we, we have done the Bogota Graffiti Tour. Amazing, right? And loved it, yeah. But, I mean, it's also the messages that are being sent. It's also, you know, it, it's really defined a moment in time, isn't it? It's defining history. Yeah, I think that that's actually pretty interesting. Uh, on our tour in, 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 uh, in Bogota, you find that it's not uh, something outside of what you experience. It, you, you go into a museum and you really feel like uh, you're watching something from the past, but you're experiencing what a neighborhood is going through, uh, what the artists are trying to say about what's happening right now. And you can f touch it, feel it. It feels and now. If I could be so stupid, in the old days, it really defined struggle. Today, it's also sometimes defining celebration. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it has gone a little bit mainstream in the past. You know, maybe it was exclusively happening at night or was illegal. And so you're seeing some of that come into the mainstream and some of the artists are being paid or it's part of a festival or they're communicating with a larger audience. Uh, yes, could you say the words after me? Banksy? Yeah, yeah. Or Shepard Ferry also is a huge one who's here in the United States. I mean, the, the thing where I realized, the moment I realized that graffiti had turned the corner and was never going back was the art auction where he self-destructed his own work. Yep. Right? I mean, and that, that was a video that went viral instantaneously. Yeah, and then that artwork is worth more because he destroyed it. And it was a very interesting story. And... Which gets back to the definition of what considers art, right? But, well, that's another segment. Yeah. What are you guys doing here in Denver, and where do you find the graffiti here in Denver? Yeah, so we, we're just doing a two-hour walking tour of uh, the best street art in Denver, and you find it everywhere for sure. We uh, just, with the time constraints that we have, we don't want to do a 17-mile all-day tour, so we have to confine it somewhere, and the best place to do that is, is certainly Rhino because it, the art is... Where so we are right now. Right here, yep. Yeah, it's very, it's very consolidated, and they also have a free festival every first week of September called Crush Walls, and so... It is based in this art district, and that is why you see such good art in this district. Now, I'm a great fan of what I call participatory travel opportunities. If I'm going to go to a museum, I want to interact. Uh, I want, if I'm going to an aquarium, I'd like to pet the fish if it's a nice fish, right? When you do the tour, or not even when you do the tour, just in terms of the, of the environment itself, are there opportunities for people to do their own graffiti? No, not, yeah. not as of yet. A lot of people have asked us about that. That definitely seems like something people are interested in. Because I would think it's a great way to either earn money or raise money or both. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For, um, the, for the communities, too. Right. Uh, I think for us, there's some logistic limitations, which is why we haven't explored it. But yes, it, it, it seems like people are very interested in that component of it. Okay, now, my other stupid question, because I failed art, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Not easy to do, but I failed it. In the old days, you know, the guys who were doing the graffiti, you know, it was spray paint late at night. But that's changed too, right? The, 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 art, the actual materials they're using are changing. The, the, the actual tools that they're using are changing. How's that? Tell me about that. Yeah, I think um, the, the tools are changing. The actual the type of people who are doing the art is changing too. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people who are coming out of art school and doing this. It's not necessarily somebody who... Um, if they're coming out of art school, were they majoring in graffiti? No, not yet. I think that I that's would think that coming. Might be, I, yeah. I, I think it would be, yeah. The artists, at least, that we feature, a lot of them have MFAs, but it wasn't specifically for that. But they are definitely using different tools, too. It's not just aerosol anymore. It's, it's a lot of uh, brush and can. And um, I, I think the idea of a, uh, a young kid who's kind of trying to reclaim a wall is, is, is not the truth anymore. Um, and you don't have to be Spider-Man anymore. Right. I mean... Because I couldn't do that. Even if I had not yeah. failed art, I would have been in orthopedic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I just read this story about uh, Shepard Ferry talking about how he had to get some assistance at some point because he uh, was turning like 40 years old and he just couldn't climb where he used to be able to climb. Yeah, and, yeah his, his knees were going out. You know, the... Well, can you imagine that at the art gallery? Old timer's day for graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most interesting thing on your tour that's the most surprising that people are not expecting? There, I will say there's some hidden figures in a, a very popular piece that everybody drives by on Larimer, and I feel like nobody... A lot unless, you, of, unless you stop, you don't see them. Yeah, or at least uh, unless it's pointed out to you. It's very hard to see, and so I think people get a kick out of that. Um, do you have one? Yeah, no, I, I think... Um, 
No, I don't. I don't have one. There's also a building where you can only see the art if you're at an angle. If you're looking at it straight, it disappears. And if you're looking at it from another angle, it's a different art piece. So uh, people like that as well. I think that's a cool thing. Okay, now you talk about the hidden ones. What's the smallest piece and what's the largest piece? So the smallest piece is probably uh, these utility workers by a guy named Jean out of Belgium. And you'll see them. There's, I, I think there's like 10 or 15 of these installations around Rhino, but they're basically tiny I, little I love stores. how you call them installations. Oh, yes. We, we, we've, we've, we've adopted the art world. Art world. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Full on art world here, yes. yes. Uh, You're under arrest. No, it's an installation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's the smallest, right? Yeah, and the largest has got to be uh, Picciavo, um, this duo out of Spain. It's uh, on a four-story um, four parking garage at like 32nd and uh, Blake or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And how many of them are using Deglo? Anybody? None, none that I know. There might be one on the, um, on the alleyway uh, back behind Denver Central Market, but uh, not as many as you would think. Um, yeah. Exactly. And it's growing. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you running out of space? In terms of the walls? Yeah. No. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for a laugh. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. My next guest, lovely to see her back again. We just did this about a year ago. The editor and co-founder of Westward, Patricia Calhoun. How are you? Very good. It's my pleasure to be back. Now, it's now it's one thing for me to say I'm happy to be back in Denver. So nothing for me to say I'm happy to be in Rhino because I've not been to this area of Denver. Well, this area used to be the classic warehouse area. There was almost nothing here but warehouses, just a few little homes. But for the most part, this was the transport center of Denver. The trains went by industrial. And in the last 10 years, it has exploded. Now, in what way has it exploded? I mean, I've been driving around. I see more galleries, more, more, uh, uh, more showrooms, more restaurants, more, more, more housing. More hotels. Yeah, like Uh, this one. This one just opened. It just opened in the last year, so there's been a lot of action since you were last here. About 15 years ago, two artists who had warehouses down here, and that was who'd been moving into the area in the early 2000s, got the idea to name it Rhino. We're actually in the River North area because the Platte goes by. They named it Rhino, and it just started exploding. And by the way, I go back long enough to know when nobody was down in Lodo. Um, exactly. Was it wasn't a, even Lodo. No, it wasn't. It was a Union Station, and that was about it. You know, and there, there's nothing next. Now, oh my God, right? right? From Lodo, which is really down by the Platte and Cherry Creek, it's developed all the way up to here, past here. And this was no man's land 15, 20 years ago. So what's distinguishing in that? What, what, what's special about, about Rhino? Well, what's really special about Rhino is it was so open to opportunity because there was a lot of empty space, a lot of parking lots, a lot of empty fields where people could build, and now just about everything has been built on. And a lot of conversion. You take an old factory or an old warehouse with high ceilings and turn it into something special. Right. Right next to us is the source, which is the old foundry, and they turned it into one of the big first food hall market-type places in this area. Right. And this hotel, even though it's a new build, um, wow, they've got great retail, they've got a, an in-house brewery. A food hall. A, a, a real food hall. Yeah, last night I, I could either have uh, Mediterranean Israeli, barbecue, whatever. Right. Well, the softa, though, is hard to miss. Yeah, well, that was pretty good last night. I, and I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting that kind of food in, in Denver to be that good. And just further up the road last night, um, Zeppelin Station, which is by the same developers as this, has another food hall, and they were doing Icelandic food. Of Which was appropriate because it were. was very snowy. It was, it was snowy. <laughs> Icelandic food. Can I have another salmon, please? Oh, what's on the menu? Salmon. It was by. cold. It was cold, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so 
But the, the art gallery scene here, too. The gallery scene has gotten incredible. And I was at a different food hall last night that had just opened on Broadway, 10th and Broadway, the Broadway Market. And that area is right, it's the museum area. And right now at the Denver Art Museum, they've got an incredible show that goes through August with Jordan Castile, who's a homegrown artist, local. She lives in Harlem now. And it is stunning. I mean, that's amazing. So they have her show. It's very rare for a big museum to give a solo to such a young artist. But they also had hip hop art, hip hop dancers last night there. You've got the Clifford Still Museum right by there. You have the Vance Kirkland Museum. So you can go drink, buy buy pot, and then go see art. You had to say that, didn't you? Or maybe do it in the <laughs> other direction. Well, if you buy pot, then it then it's all art. Right, exactly. You're much more forgiving of mistakes on the wall. That's wonderful. No, that's the fire exit, sir. Oh, thank you. Okay, now, moving right along, the Museum of Nature and Science has an, has an exhibit now that is unbelievable, which is Da Vinci. Which is incredible. And they I've have, been talking about that for weeks now. They brought it in. They have been doing, they, they just got, had the Dead Sea Scrolls last year. They've been really, really smart on expanding beyond just Colorado natural history, but bringing in international history. And this Da Vinci show is a must-see. I mean, look, I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it. If you want to ask me the one person I always look to have dinner with, it is not Albert Einstein. It's Da Vinci. Forget, forget the Mona Lisa. That was like one one-hundredth of what this guy did. And the beautiful thing about this exhibit is they actually show you what he did as an engineer and as a designer. Things he, he invented and developed that he didn't even know he did, like the helicopter. And, and, and architectural support foundation stuff that they're still being used today. And I, I highly recommend that exhibit. Yeah, the range of his skills is incredible. And you also have one of the greatest views of Denver from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, looking back across City Park and then to the mountains. Now, having said that, I judge a city a lot of times by where you get the best breakfasts, right? You got an idea? Oh, I do. Uh, right down the street from here, one of the classic old Mexican restaurants, Mexico City Lounge, you can get a great Mexican breakfast. Benny's has great Mexican breakfasts. Then you have all the places that are doing brunch now, which is definitely a trend. Everyone is starting to do brunch. What about snooze? Snooze is great if you can wait two hours. <laughs> That's why they call it snooze. Right, exactly. But snooze is a classic, which was a homegrown concept, started on Larimer Street, not far from where we are was not a good neighborhood at the time, was not a hot happening neighborhood, and it's grown into a multiple, multiple location place and actually and now is a national chain. Now, one of the biggest problems of a city like Denver, which is growing so well and so fast, is affordable housing. It's allowing the people who work here to be able to afford to work here. What's being done about that? There's a lot being done, but it is not an easy solution. I would say affordability is the top issue in Denver. It's not just, as you note, it's not just being able to live in the city. I mean, you can maybe find things on the outskirts that are a little cheaper. Because it's easy to get priced out. It's easy to get priced out. And then for people who are taking low, lower paying jobs, the servers, the uh, the clerks, the 7-Eleven people, where, do you, where can you live and how can you get here and earn minimum wage? So there's a real shortage of workers here. I know. And, 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 but that means, you know, if you can get here, you know, hopefully somebody will get enough housing in, 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 in the can, in the pipeline, to be able to support you. And they are building it. And de developers who are supposed to provide some level of affordability or they yeah. can buy out of the number of affordable housing units. But even so, affordable is not affordable to a lot of minimum wage workers. Now, what about the art district here and, and the film experience? 
Well, we have several art districts. So you've got the Santa Fe Arts District, which is the old Latino part of town, which is jumping. It has the Museo de las Americas, CHAC, uh, the Chicano Humanities Art District. Great. That's probably the, the hottest art area right now. And it's just, ve- just off from where the, all the museums are. There, Rhino still has a lot of galleries. Uh, Lakewood, which is on West Colfax, is now the up-and-coming art district because rent is cheaper. So a lot of art galleries have moved there. When your friends come to visit you from out of town, where's the one place you want to take them? Depending on how friendly I am with these friends. I'm talking about friends. I make them take the train in from From the the airport. airport. Yeah, because nobody wants to drive to the airport. Right, exactly. Plus, it's fun. The fact that there is a train from the airport to Denver, I think even the escalator to the train at DIA is a thrill I will tell you, when they first built the airport, of course, the, the train wasn't there. Right. And it was a schlep. It was a really long schlep, and there was once an idea to put buffalo bison out there, which would have been great. They never did it, but no, now, now they just have the, the, the horse statue on the way in. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. the killer horse. The killer horse, yeah. Uh, but, so you'd have them come into Union Station, which you can't believe how Union Station has changed. And by the way, speaking of Union Station, the Amtrak train still comes in once a day, the Zephyr. Right, it does. It does. And so Amtrak's still using that station, but that station's evolved into so many great things. It's great, and in fact, through... Beginning of April, you can take the Amtrak train to Winter Park skiing, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That is a bonus. That is a real cool bonus. But another good breakfast place there. Uh, There's a hotel in Union Station now. It's it's very cool. Right, the Crawford Hotel, which is, so if you can stay there, great. It's a really fun place to wake up and watch the trains coming in. But then you have your your. And if you're staying at the Crawford, that's where you got to go to snooze because then you can get in. Right, you can get a reservation. They will get you on the list. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. How does somebody from Fayetteville, Arkansas, then go and intern at a ticket-selling operation like uh, Live Nation and AEG and end up as one of Denver's hottest musician-songwriters? I'm going to ask her. <laughs> Sarah Slayton, welcome. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. And no, and no Arkansas accent. I, it went away over time, I guess. But, um, you know, if I have a couple of local delicious microbrews, it comes out, and y'all don't even know what's coming at you. Uh, there it is. There it is. See? <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. What brought you to Denver first? Well, I visited Denver when I was younger and fell in love with it. I had a chance to see Estes Park and be up in the Rockies and go to, like, the Denver Mint um, on a Girl Scout trip when I was little. <laughs> and I always liked the Denver Broncos. Um, but when I was in school in Missouri doing music business, I found that there were limited internship opportunities in my own backyard there. So I hunted down the folks at Live Nation in Denver and convinced them to take me on. Now, the first time I came to Denver, actually, I take it back. The third time I came down, I was a Newsweek correspondent. And I was doing the cover story on Bette Midler. Oh, wow. And she was playing Red Rocks. And I got to go out there. The opening act, believe it or not, was Barry Manilow. (laughs) Now it's really dating myself. But that was an experience I'll never forget. Oh, I'm sure. It's a magical place. Yeah. And you played there. I still can't believe that I played there. Yeah. um, Denver Film Society here is fantastic and has a program called Film on the Rocks. And they do a wide variety of movies during the summer. A lot of them sell out, and my band Edison had a chance to play at Film on the Rocks in 2017, and it was sold out, so there's about 10,000 people. And you know, when you stand there on that stage and you look out, you're not just looking out, you're looking up. You're looking up, and you're looking at beautiful rocks that eroded over time and made these just wonderful walls where the sound just bounces like magic. And the way they light it. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, it's, it's essentially seductive. Yes. Hard to pay attention sometimes. 
It's true. I mean, I was looking around the whole time just in wonder, trying to take it all in. And you're staying in Denver. I am. I love Denver. It's it's a place that I always come back to. My band was on the road a lot. We did over 150,000 miles in the four years that we were touring nonstop. And Denver was a perfect place to come back and rest our heads. And, you know, we spent a summer in New York and I spent some time in L.A. And I love, you know, networking and meeting people out there. But Denver is just home. So. Now, here in Denver, you've played just about all the venues. Yes, I have. I started like? out... Um, I mean, when I first got here, I'd go to every open mic and every coffee shop and eventually worked my way up. Eventually to, you got paid. Yes, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some highlights would be the Bluebird. Red Rocks was pretty good, I'd say. Yeah, um, not bad. And then up, uh, there's a place called Mishawaka Amphitheater. I also had a chance to play at. That's a little outside of Denver. And then there's a ton of small clubs that are and most really fun. And most of them are still operating. Yes. That's the cool thing. Yeah, and there's more every day. Every time I blink, there's a new music venue. And what have you brought to play for us today? I have a song. Well, you know, you're the travel expert here, so yeah. I have a song about traveling a little bit and I'm missing ready. home. So. I'm ready. All right. Sarah Slayton. The song's called Tie Me Down, and it is from the record Familiar Spirit by Edison. Traveling home The only road that I know A gypsy soul Of wanderer's bones And waking in your sheets Or in this city why am I leaving when I found my something? And how do you tie me down? The world moves so quickly now. And how do you tie me down? The world moves so quickly. I love it. <laughs> I can relate to it. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah. Being home is a prison. You got to go on the road. Yeah. And then you're on the road and you miss home. But as soon as you get back, you're itching to get back out. Wow. How many albums now? I put out two solo albums. And then with my band Edison, we put out two albums as well. And how often you'd be performing in Denver? I try to perform in Denver at least once every two months if I can. Um, in the summer, it's a lot more because we have so many great festivals like in our right. backyard here. So. And another way to sneak back out to Red Rocks. Oh, of course. <laughs> Any okay. chance you can. Always. I know. Sarah Slayton, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate that. Is there a website people can follow you? Yes. If you're on Instagram and Twitter, it's at I am Sarah Slayton, S-L-A-T-O-N, and it's also sarahslayton.com. Wow. Can you play just a little more? I'll do whatever you like, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and fly away my baby bird fly away from me I 
traveling soul. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. The feet of man walks a thousand miles to fall My next guest, one of the few Los Angeles natives I've ever met, my mother being the other one, I think. Mm. Uh, born and raised there, and of course then exploded as a chef uh, throughout the South and the Southwest. Jeff Osaka, welcome. Thanks for having me, Peter. You worked with so many of the guys that I know, like Bradley Ogden in Las Vegas when uh, when he was doing that. Uh, San Francisco, actually. Yeah, but I saw him, in, I, I knew him in, in, when he had the, the yeah, restaurant in Vegas. For a short time. For a short time he had, he had that restaurant. He had one of his sons. With his son, it. exactly. Right, yeah. And then of course uh, Wolfgang. Yes. And now uh, Denver. Why Denver? Um, mainly quality of life. Um, it's a long, it's quite a long story, but uh, I met a, a girl in California. It's always, she, it always gets back yeah, to that. And yeah. uh, we are um, together and happily married now. Uh, but she was, she's from Colorado, and I had, I had the intention of moving to Denver anyway to open a restaurant. And, and now you had did, no choice. Yeah, it was kind of kismet. <laughs> we uh, moved together, got married. We have a seven-year-old now. And you're here. Yes. And you know the restaurant scene here is. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying it's exploding. Exploding, correct. Right. I mean, yeah. you blink your eye, and three more restaurants have opened. That's uh, that's very true. So how do you stay relevant? That is the most difficult part of the business. Um, you know, you can do great food, you can have a great concept, uh, all the bells and whistles, but staying relevant is, is the most important thing. Um, it's keeping abreast of the trends um, and what everybody else is doing. Not to, not to copy those things, but uh, to offer um, items that your customers want. Now, when I was growing up, knowing that you were coming on the show today, when I was growing up, it reminded me uh, my parents, I thought this was like the coolest thing ever. If I was really good on a Saturday night, they would take me out to this restaurant called the Burger Train. Mm. And you'd order the burger, right? And it would you sat in a huge oval counter. Nobody had tables. You, everybody was at the counter. Mm. And of course, right above the counter were the train tracks. Mm. And or here comes the, the train with your burger. Does that ring a bell to you at all? Very similar to our sushi rama concept, or, or kaiten sushi, or conveyor belt sushi. Um, Explain that, because when you say conveyor belt sushi, I have the wrong image. I think gas station sushi. So, no, this is uh, high quality sushi. I mean, we we purchase the fish and the same rice as the higher end sushi sushi restaurants here in Denver, uh, but we, we bring it to you at a value, um, and it comes to. Uh, literally on a conveyor belt. So it's it's probably the fastest. Now you realize, of course, uh, I'm, uh, human nature being what yeah. it is, because I remember my days at Burger Train, because it wasn't just the burger that came by, it was the french fries that came by, it was every, yeah. right, the grilled onions. If I've got stuff coming by on a conveyor belt, I'm going to eat more. Uh, that's, yes. That's the idea. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> but... It's, it's, it's consumed quickly, isn't it? It is consumed quickly. And uh, one of the main concerns is how long is that sushi on the belt. Right. Uh, we have a way of tracking. Um, at each plate you is You geo-track the sashimi? Pretty close to. Really? Uh, so every plate is coded. And we're, we're allowed to keep it on the belt for four hours. But we like to, we, as for quality control, it's 90 minutes. And as the but belt goes by, is it, is it refrigerated above? Is there no, a, it's not. Uh, most sushi is not meant to be eaten cold. Right, of it's course. It's room temperature, so it's, it's, it's perfect. And yet most sushi, before it gets to you, has been frozen. Correct. People don't know that. The high-quality tuna and the yellowtail we use, all previously frozen. Now, have you been to Skigi? 
I have. Isn't it's, that amazing? It's been it's been some time. That was yeah. a life changing moment for me to go there yeah. at four thirty in the morning and watch that tuna auction in Japan. Uh, yeah, I did the same, and I ended up. I hope you didn't raise your hand because you would have bought no. a thirty thousand dollar fish. Yeah. yeah. Or the latest one in the millions. Yeah. That was just sold uh, about a month ago. Yeah. In the millions. Yeah, in the millions. That's one lucky catch. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you've got the sushi restaurant. Correct. And it's on the conveyor. Yes. And it's doing okay. Yes. We actually have three of them and one under construction. So it's, it's doing very well for us. Can you adjust the speed of the conveyor? We can. We can. <laughs> so <laughs> I, have, I have images of the Lucille Ball episode from the Lucy show. One of my favorite ones. Right. Making, with the cherry the, the, the candy. Cherry, yeah. With the cherry on the cake. Yeah. yeah. But then you've got some other restaurants here too. I do. Uh, I have Osaka Ramen. Uh, a traditional and kind of non-traditional ramen shop. Um, we do our take on uh, the traditional like tonkotsu, and then we have uh, like seasonal ones, like my favorite, the green chili and chorizo ramen we do in the fall when um, the local green chilies are in season. Um, and then 12 at and, Madison. And then 12 at Madison. It's kind of a reboot of my original 12 in the ballpark neighborhood uh, where I used to change the menu once a month or 12 times a year. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.